Well, let's open our Bibles. Um, in keeping with the summer of Psalms, I'm speaking on James 2. Uh, <laughs> I'd done most of my prep and then Matt comes in and goes, you realize we're talking on Psalms over the summer? <laughs> Get on you. Um, all right. James chapter 2. Challenging passage. Challenging passage. Humbling passage to, to work on and trusting the Lord's grace that he's going to give us clarity as we work our way through it. And as I've been doing my preparation for this, I've been remembering one of our children when they were young. This is really hard not to name the person as I go because I, I just use a pronoun and I've, I've blown it. Um, that we used to buy, as part of their education, we used to buy musical instruments. Um, and so we bought this, this, I think it was like a clarinet, it was made of plastic, and it worked for a while and then it broke. And we thought, oh, we better get another one. And so we got like a saxophone made of plastic and, and that worked. And we were, try, we were thinking that this would teach this child, um, you know, this is a clarinet, this is a saxophone, but he called it a works and a doesn't works. <laughs> that was all he could see. No, this is, a, this is a saxophone. No, no, that's a works. Well, what's that? That's a doesn't works. And I thought that was, that was really interesting that it didn't matter what we were trying to get across, what was important to him... <laughs> was whether it worked or didn't work. Now, when we're looking at faith, and we're going to look at that today in James chapter 2, you know, it's crucial that it's a faith that works. Because there are many kinds of faith. We're going to look at that uh, today. And it's not just any kind of nebulous faith that connects us to God, that makes us recipients of his grace and his salvation. It's a faith that works. And this is the simple thing that James is going to bring across to us this morning um, through, through this wonderful letter of his is make sure that you have saving faith. Make sure that it's a faith that works. So let's look there, um, starting in verse 14 and going down to the end, verse 26. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also, faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works." You believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Was not, our, our, uh, was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works and faith was completed or perfected uh, by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says Abraham believed God and it was credited to him or counted, it, counted to him as righteousness. And he was called a friend of God. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. And in the same way was not also Rahab, the prostitute, justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way. For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works, is dead. Let's pray together. Dear Father, we, we're delighted that we can sing to you this morning. It was great to, to sing great songs of your glory, great songs of the, the salvation that you've provided for us through Jesus. It's so good to know you and to be counted as your children. And Father, we want to confess that that's entirely of grace. And this morning, Lord, we pray that you would help us to understand a difficult passage. And Lord, help us to respond the way you would have us do as we look at your word here and let it grind at our hearts and change us. And as we accept it as coming straight from you, breathed out from you, please work in our hearts this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So, challenging passage. Challenging passage very much misunderstood and misused. And one of the common misconceptions that we find as we first come to a passage like this is that somehow James was disputing with Paul. 
James was disputing with Paul. And I'd like to just look at that for a minute before we go on. Does the New Testament give any hints that there was a dispute between James and Paul? Well, the first thing we need to know is that the letter of James was the first letter written in the New Testament. So was James trying to correct Paul? It was the first letter. Galatians might have followed close behind, but it's very likely that it was a long, long time before he ever saw it, if he ever did, because it was sent to to the Galatian church. A long way away, there's no record that he ever visited there. It wasn't posted on Facebook. So he was written before that, and so it's clear that he wasn't trying to correct him. Also, the scripture only ever records James as having a positive attitude towards Paul and the gospel that he preached. In Galatians chapter 2, Paul goes to Jerusalem. He goes to Jerusalem. He's concerned that there might be a split uh, coming up because there are Judaizers going around telling people that they needed to be circumcised uh, to be saved. And so Paul takes his gospel to the pillars of the church. Um, in, in verse, uh, sorry, uh, chapter 2, verse 1, we see he goes there. Listen to, to what they say to him, how they receive his gospel in Galatians 2, 9 and 10. It says, When James, Cephas and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that was given to me, they gave the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me, that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised only, here it comes, what are they going to add to his gospel? Only they asked us to remember the poor. The very thing that I was eager to do. No additions. A couple of years later, at the Jerusalem Council, they discussed the issue of whether Gentile believers needed to be circumcised. Again, to be saved. When it came James's turn to speak, listen to what he said. Verses 19 and 20. Therefore, my judgment is that, and sorry, according to the linguists, James wrote this letter. Sorry, this is what he said, then then I'm going to get to the letter, and then I hope I'll get my head together. (laughs) So this is what he stood up and said. Therefore, my judgment is that we should not trouble uh, those of the Gentiles who turn to God, but should write to them to abstain from things polluted by idols and from sexual immorality and from what has been strangled and from blood. These are mostly fellowship issues mostly fellowship issues between the Jews and the Gentiles. And the resulting letter that I was trying to talk about before, most commentators believe that James wrote this letter. It has the characteristics of something that he would write. He says in verse 24, Since we have heard that some persons have gone out from us and troubled you with words, unsettling your minds, although we gave them no instructions, they did not represent us. This was not from us. These are people who have gone out from us, from Jerusalem, and they've bothered you, but they didn't come from us or represent our opinions. So this is very important that we understand that all we see in the New Testament is a positive relationship, an affirming relationship between the apostles, particularly James, and Paul when it came to his gospel. There is some confusion about Galatians 2.12, and we can just have a quick look at that. And we can ask some questions of the passage. Galatians 2.12. For before, this is talking about Peter. Um, Paul talking about Peter's behavior. You might remember the passage. For before certain men came from James, i.e. from Jerusalem, he, that's Peter, was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. Now, does it say that these men told Paul, uh, told Peter to separate himself and not eat with the Gentiles? Nope. Does it say that they were in the circumcision party? Nope. This circumcision party had also bothered Peter, criticized him when he led Cornelius to the Lord. That, that's at the start of chapter 11 of Acts. No mention of any connection to James at that point in time in, in Acts there. If James was a of this circumcision party don't you think he might have talked about circumcision in his letter there's not one mention not one mention of circumcision in the letter of James so this is very important that particular uh, verse is showing Peter's concern of word getting back to Jerusalem 
and that he was going to have another run-in with those people who had a go at him last time. That's all it was. Very, very clear. So James was in no way opposed to Paul. The grace that Paul preached, James preached also. Um, One other common misconception is that James was more focused on good works than Paul. Really? Have you read Romans 6? Galatians 5? Ephesians 4? You must not live as the Gentiles live. Colossians chapter 3? Powerful passages from Paul speaking about the need for us to work our salvation out with fear and trembling. So they were not that different. The reality is they spoke the same thing with different language. That's the case, and we're going to see that further as we get into looking at what justification means later on. So James never believed or taught salvation through anything else but grace. But right here, he wants to bring definition to what that faith is that saves us, what faith is. So let's look at how he does that. The first point that he makes here is that unseen faith is not saving faith. Unseen faith is not saving faith. Let's have a look here at verse 14. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. Now the context for our passage, you just look up one verse, is in verse 13 of chapter 2. And he's been speaking about poverty there and favoring the rich over the poor. And the subject continues in this passage and he concludes it with these words, verse 13. For judgment is without mercy to the one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. The one who hasn't shown mercy goes to hell, while the one who has shown mercy rejoices at the time of judgment. This is very similar to Matthew 25, if you remember the story of the sheep and the goats. What are you talking about, James? Are you preaching salvation by works? And so here we can see he needs to explain himself. So coming down the passage, it's very important to ask ourselves... Is James separating out faith and works? Is he saying you must have this one and if you don't have this one, you better add it to this one? Is that what he's saying? I would say to you that he's not. He's not doing that. So, verse 14. Let's have a look as we go through that. Um, What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith? but does not have works, can that faith save him? Look down in verse 17 too. So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is what? Inadequate? Incomplete? I'm not saying it's dead. Do you notice that he's talking about the quality of the faith? He's not talking about the need to add something to it, the nature of faith. He's saying that faith that doesn't produce works is not faith. As God defines it, it's powerless to save. So he's not saying, he's not separating them out, he's actually putting them back together again and speaking of the, the quality of faith. So the issue here is what kind of faith saves? Profession? If I profess faith, does that save? What about knowledge? If I know, does that save? These are two forms where he goes on further down and he shows that these are forms of unsaving faith if it's just knowledge, if it's just profession. Let's have a look at at these. There are many people who profess to be Christian. Many people who profess to be Christian. Is that something we just accept? When someone says, yeah, you know, I'm a Christian. Is that something we, oh, cool. (laughs) James doesn't accept that. Can that faith save him? Let's look at verse 14 here. The verbs in the middle section of verse 14, uh, the verb says, if someone says, the verb has, and the verb does not have, they're all continuous. So they're speaking of lifestyle. Speaking of lifestyle. This person lives as a professing Christian. Someone who says, I have faith, I have faith. 
That's their normal life. People think they're a believer. They most likely go to church, might even go to Wednesday night Bible study. If you ask them, they'll say, I'm a Christian. But there's a problem. The pattern of their life is that their faith does not produce good works. The pattern of their life, their continuous behavior is something that does not produce good works. And the old saying is, if you were taken to court for being a Christian, would your case be thrown out for lack of evidence? So it's a pattern here that we're looking at. It's not the fight against sin that is a normal thing for Christians, where we're fighting against our flesh. James speaks of that in chapter 3, verse 2, where he says, we all stumble in many ways. This is not what he's talking about. He's talking about someone that has just given over. There has never been a change in their life. And then he asks a rhetorical question here. Can that faith save him? Can that faith save him? The cool thing in Greek rhetorical questions is they'll either put a yes or a no right in the question there. And this one has the no in it. So we would say that faith cannot save him, can it? That faith cannot save him, can it? It's speaking of something very obvious. So confession of faith that has no impact on how you live your life does not save. Very clearly stated here. Don't you like it when God makes things simple? He follows on from there and he gives an example of what this would look like. And he gives an example from his context. So amongst James's listeners, poverty was a big issue. And that comes up repeatedly in his letter and in many other places. So the treatment of the poor in the church would be a very natural example um, in his context. He says here in verse 15, If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So this is a believer who's poor. They're probably not able to get work because of persecution. Poorly clothed here literally is the word naked. But this could speak of someone who doesn't have warm outer clothes or someone whose clothes are so wrecked that they're, they're ashamed to go outside. This person is spoken of as of not having daily food. Not talking about missing the odd meal, but actually not having their daily food. This is a person who is in dire straits. Their health is probably suffering from malnutrition. Their kids are probably sick all the time. They're the kids with the, you know, uh, it's not coming down to their knees. They might well smell because they can't wash their clothes. This is the reality where, where there's no welfare. Desperate people. So think of that person in your mind, a desperate person. And then someone comes and says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled. Go in peace, of course, was a common saying amongst Jewish folks. But the second part of the, the blessing here is it's in the middle voice in Greek, which means it's assuming activity on the part of the subject. You go get warm. You go fill yourself. That's nasty. The very least that they're saying here is that you are not my problem. You're not my problem. And so they don't give them a thing. What kind of state of heart does this display? What shows a, an utter lack of compassion, lack of mercy, lack of love, lack of generosity. Such sin in this person. John has a similar example in, in 1 John, a bit further down in chapter 3 from where we looked at this morning. John says, but if anyone has this world's good goods and sees his brother in need, this is interesting how he says this, yet closes his heart against him. How does God's love abide in him? How does God's love abide in him? Abide here is continuous again. Love is not in you. It's not there. I can't see it. And love is the most basic and central command to us as believers. So having none of it, that's a damning thing. A damning thing. So this is a very hard heart. And let's remember that we're talking about lifestyle. We're talking about a characteristic of this person. So James openly and firmly questions their faith. He questions their faith. Is there any evidence aside from your words 
that you're a child of the living God, a new person, the dwelling place of the mighty Holy Spirit. Where's the evidence? Show me. He goes on and envisages that someone will uh, ask a follow-up question. In verse 18, he says, But someone will say, You have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works and I will show you my faith by my works. You see how he envisages someone coming up with this kind of dismissive way of saying it's not really that important? This is not a person seriously arguing with James because it's the wrong way around if that were the case. Wouldn't you say, you have works, I have faith? If you were talking to James, you wouldn't say, you have faith, I have works because he's the one pushing the works, right? So this is a dismissive person. This is a person saying, whatever, you know, one or the other, it's all right. It's all right, man, chill, calm down. (laughs) We're all all good. (laughs) This is... I don't know. If I met James, I don't think I'd say that. (laughs) One or the other, does it really matter? And he says, show me, and this is a strong command here, show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. This is cool. You see how the the person, the, the, what do you call it? What do you call it when you're not talking about a real thing? Hypothetical person. There you go. I speak English sometimes. Pulls faith and works apart. You have faith, I have works. What does James do? No, 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 no. He puts them back together again. I will show you my faith by my works. Puts them back together again. This is interesting. If someone came to you and said, show me your God. How many people have had that happen? A lot of us have. Did we all give the same answer? I can't show you God himself. God's invisible, but I can show you what? I can show you what he's done. What happens if someone comes to you and says, show me your faith? Can I, can I get at it with a scalpel? How can I see your faith? Wow, it's deep, deep down, down, deep down in my... Yeah. I can see your faith by what you do. This is what he's talking about. Confession by itself is not saving faith. It's not saving faith. Faith is seen by what it does. Well, what about knowledge then? Knowledge is important. We like knowledge, don't we? Knowledgeable people. Verse 19, you believe that God is one. You do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Even the demons believe and shudder. So we talk, look here at the content of what they believe. This is actually the Shema. This is a common thing. For the Jews, it's in Deuteronomy 6, verse 4. It goes like this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. This was very important knowledge to a Jew. This was something that was a confession for them. So he's not saying that there's something wrong with that knowledge. But he's saying there's something wrong if that knowledge doesn't affect them. He goes on and he speaks ironically here. Ironically, sarcastically. You do well. We might say, congratulations. Bully for you. Good for you. This is the sense that he's bringing across uh, right here. Because his point is to say that knowledge without impact on one's life makes your knowledge no better than the knowledge of a demon. Worse, actually. The demons believe and they shudder. It's hard to make it come out of my mouth, but these are God-fearing demons. God-fearing demons. And yet they're being compared to someone who says, I believe, and yet doesn't fear God. Doesn't fear God. If you feel free to brazenly mistreat God's weakest, most defenseless children, let me tell you, you do not fear him. You do not fear him. We had a man, or we still do, uh, he's on our staff in, in the Bible College in Manado, where I serve. His name's Weetro. You might have seen his face outside there last year. He was a hard, hard man. He used to get roaring drunk up in his village. He doesn't do it at the moment. <laughs> up in his village, and he would get roaring drunk, and he'd attach swords to himself. They're like long machetes. And he'd walk out the main street and start screaming for someone to fight. 
if you see his hand, his, I think it's his right hand, it's like that because someone cut across here with a machete and so his three fingers here don't, don't work. Um, we tease him in volleyball because the ball, he, goes, he tries to set it and the ball goes behind him. Um, but the Lord saved him. The Lord saved him. And he's an absolutely transformed man. Um, one of the most gentle, uh, happy-go-lucky guys you'll ever meet now. Um, but when we play soccer, I, I can tell who's known him for longer. So the local, the local guys, they'll come up and they'll, they'll be doing all, all this sort of thing with him. It's quite funny watching guys doing that in soccer. Um, but they'll, they'll be in his face, you know, and, and, uh, and uh, sled, sledging with him. And he just laughs and runs off and looks for the ball. But I noticed a big difference in the guys that come from his old neighborhood. The guys who come from his old neighborhood, they, they go past and they're, hi, <laughs> hi, <laughs> you know, really nice. Let's, let's be nice. This is, this is we throw. Makes a big difference if you know someone, eh? And like I said, when, when a, a person who professes to be a Christian shows no signs of a fear for God, you don't know God, our God of wrath, our God of holiness. You don't show love. How can you say you know God? This is, this is important for us to know. He calls the person like this a fool, a fool. Literally an empty shirt wouldn't be an empty shirt, an empty person. We would say an empty shirt. Someone who's puffed up, thinks they're like this, but really they're nothing like that. An empty person. Someone who doesn't act on their knowledge. That's a fool in scripture. Someone who knows but doesn't act. So unseen faith is not saving faith. And James makes that very, very clear here. The second aspect of this passage starts in verse 20 down through verse 26. And I've you know, given a funny title, justification is justified by what it produces. Um, we're going to go through this um, this section it gives two Old Testament examples, Abraham and Rahab. But what we see here, and what is often confusing to people, is a familiar word, the word justified. The word justified. And I think as all of us read through that passage before, we see justified and go, hang on, hang on. What's he, what's he talking about there? So just to explain this word, this word had two basic meanings. Two basic meanings. The first one was to be proven right, proven righteous. So most often it was used in a court case where someone would judge or even God would be the judge, but actually showing that someone was innocent of something that they were, um, that they were accused of. So proven righteous, proven right. This is actually the far more common use of the word in the Greek Old Testament. The second main um, use of this word was to be made right. And that's probably the one that we're familiar with, to be made right, to be made pure. This was nowhere near as common until Paul started using it in this way to express what happens to a sinner who believes they are made righteous in God's eyes. Both of them speak of being declared righteous. But one is being declared righteous because you're innocent, declared righteous because you're righteous. The other one is being declared righteous because through faith, Christ's righteousness has been brought to bear on your life. So these are very important, proven right or made right. There are 40 odd times uh, this, this word is used in the New Testament. And of those 40 times, Paul uses it 30 times. And almost every time it's made right. But there are twice he uses it of being proven right. Incidentally, uh, there, Paul uses it in this way of Jesus in 1 Timothy 3.16, where Jesus is spoken of as being vindicated by the Holy Spirit. Do you remember that? Vindicated by the Holy Spirit. That's the word, any, uh, this one, dikaioo, this uh, word justified. Did that mean he was made righteous before God? Not at all. What did the Holy Spirit coming on him do in the mind of John the Baptist when he saw him? Oh, this is the one. This is the one. He is who the Father said he is. He is who he says he is. That's a sense that was used. And we're going to see that about Abraham. God declared him righteous and then later on, through his works, he was seen to be who he said he was. Seen to be who he said he was. 
proven to be righteous. Um, so this is important. Okay. So again, we remember that James was probably the first letter in the New Testament. Which one do you think he used? The more common use of the word or Paul's use of the word? Proven to be righteous or made righteous? I think it's actually very clear here that he was intending to say proven righteous because that was the more common use. So let's go down and think about this as we read from verse 20. And I'm going to do a dynamic equivalent and you can stone me later um, for this from verse 20. And I'm going to put proven righteous in there for uh, justified. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Was not Abraham our father proven righteous by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was acting along with his works and faith was completed or perfected, matured by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness and he was called a friend of God. You see that a person is proven righteous by works and not by faith alone. And in the same way was not Abraham, the prostitute, proven righteous by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way. For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. Doesn't that make a lot of sense as you see it that way? Bring clarity to see that actually this is the point he was trying to make using the more commonly used proven righteous form of the word or meaning for this word. Another issue that, that can make this hard to understand is that the sacrifice of Isaac and the point where Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness, they're kind of squished together. Did you notice that here? They're squished together. Well, what I want to do now is pull them back apart and show you them in their, in their history so you can see how this came about. Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. That was in Genesis 15:16. Have a look there. Genesis 15:16. This is the point where Paul says he was um, justified. Paul says that in Romans 4. This is the point where he was justified. This is Genesis 15, verse 16. Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. And that's the whole basis for Paul's argument there in Romans chapter 4, that salvation is by faith. And he makes Abraham his example. Now, it doesn't say what age Abraham was at that point in time, but if we skip over to 16 verse 16, chapter 16 verse 16, We can see how old, he, how old he was when uh, Hagar gave birth to Ishmael, which must have been um, a few years after the promise. It says he was 86. He was 86 at the time. So a good guess would be to say that the oldest he could have been when he was justified by faith is about 84 years old. About 84 years old, so still a spring chicken. Now, skip over to chapter 21. Remember that, 84 years old. Skip over to chapter 21, verse 5. And we can see how old Abraham was when Isaac was born. He was 100 years old when Isaac was born. So that's 16 years. Did I get that right? I need Herman here to correct me. <laughs> 16 years later. So 16 years have passed. So... The next question is, how old was Isaac when Abraham needed to take him up to the mountain? The Lord was asking him to sacrifice his son. He was actually a late teenager, either late teenager or early 20s. So if we say that that was another 20 years on, could have been about 18 to 20 years on, it's been over 30 years, over 30 years since Abraham was declared righteous. 30 years later. Let me just do a very loose paraphrase for you. Was not Abraham proven to truly be God's friend when he offered up Isaac, thus fulfilling the scripture that said he had been made righteous 30-odd years before? Does that make sense? 
what he did way down here proved and fulfilled what God had said way back here, 30 years apart. He didn't get resaved. It just proved that he was God's friend. So we can see that once Abraham was made right with God, back in Genesis 15, through faith, his works later on proved the reality of his faith. His works proved the reality of his faith. And this is James's point from the beginning. What's more, they matured his faith. They matured his faith. It says in verse 22, and faith was completed by his works. This is the common word, teleo here, which means to perfect or to complete or to mature. Obedience strengthens faith. Obedience matures faith. Obedience perfects faith. You've seen that in your own life, haven't you? How your faith has grown when you've obeyed the Lord. So Abraham was proven righteous and even further sanctified by the works that he did. So let's read that. Uh, Read verse 24 in that light. So you see a person is proven to be right with God by works and not by faith alone. Speaking of proof. And of course, this is going to echo verse 18 that we looked at before. Show me your faith apart from your works and what? I will show you my faith by my works. By my works. Now, what about Rahab? Rahab can be confusing, but it's really not when you look at the passage. James uh, 2.25. And in the same way was not Abraham, uh, sorry, Rahab. I don't want to say Abraham the prostitute. That, that would be a bad bad move. Rahab the prostitute, justified by works, proven right by works, when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way. It's clear again, isn't it? Do you get saved by hiding a few spies? We might call that salvation by treachery. She really was a traitor. Um, So this was an incredible step for her. The issue is why did she hide them? Why did she hide them? What was driving her? Let's have a look in Joshua chapter 2. And there's a few things here that will make very clear that this is a woman of faith. This is a woman of faith. Most of you will probably know, but I'll explain to you that the word Yahweh is represented by the Lord in all capital letters, big Lord, um, in the Old Testament. You're going to see that word. This is God's covenant name coming up off, out of her mouth, coming out of her mouth. Starting from verse 8 of Joshua 2. Before the men lay down, she came up to them on the roof and said to the men, I know that Yahweh, the Lord, has given you the land and that the fear of you has fallen upon us and that all the inhabitants of the land melt away. For we have heard how Yahweh dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt and what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan, uh, to Sihon and Og, whom you devoted to destruction. And as soon as we heard it, our hearts melted, and there was no spirit left in any man because of you. For the Lord your God, he is God in the heavens above and on the earth beneath. Now then, please swear to me by Yahweh, that as I have have dealt kindly with you, you also will deal kindly with my father's house and give me a sure sign that you will save alive my father, my brothers, my sisters, and, and so on. And he sent them out. She sent them out by another way. So she uses God's covenant name, Yahweh, four times there. But particularly in verse 11, for the Lord, uh, your God, he is God in the heavens above and on the earth beneath. Think about this woman. She chose to ally herself with God, with Yahweh, at the cost of her own life, possibly with her own people. That's faith. That's tremendous faith. And again, this is what James is saying. She acted that way because she was convinced that that Yahweh was the Lord of heaven and earth. What you do does not make you right. That's completely and utterly of grace. 
And we know what Paul said there. And let me bring Paul and James together here. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It's a gift of God, not as a result of works that no one may boast. Breaking in with James again there. What you do proves, proves you're a recipient of grace. Coming back to Paul. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Your actions prove that you're a recipient of grace. This is very important. And he closes out this section by coming back to his main point in verse 26. For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. It's not incomplete. It's worthless. It's worthless. So in summary, coming down here, if a person's faith is purely knowledge or purely a profession, I'm a Christian, I'm a Christian, the word of God says that such faith is not a faith that saves. It doesn't do them any good. It's dead. It's worse than demonic faith. It's useless. It's not the faith of our forefathers. And it gives no evidence of and therefore no assurance of salvation. This is an important topic. An important topic. Now, if you're lacking assurance and you're feeling anxious at the moment, then you probably fall into one of three categories. The first category is the breathless Christian. The breathless Christian. This is the... The Christian with no assurance. You are probably a person, if that's you, who hates your sin. And you quickly confess it. You quickly repent from it. But you continue afterwards to beat yourself up about it. And the negative talk inside your head robs you of your joy. It robs you of your confidence. It destroys your worship. Might I suggest to you that even though with your mouth you will say, I am saved by grace alone, through faith alone, you actually don't believe that practically. You don't believe that practically. And this passage certainly does not teach that. It doesn't say, if you're lacking works, add works. It's saying your faith is dead. You need real faith. You need real faith. You know there's nothing in you that will ever be worthy of salvation. Nothing. And if there was, I'd stand here and say, praise you. But we're not going to say that, are we? You're not worthy of salvation. And the way of salvation is just to admit that. I'm a sinner. That's me. It's true. I remember sitting with a book. This was years after. I'm a breathless Christian. (laughs) I have been before. I remember sitting with a book called The Love of God and in the middle of it it had, um, uh, I think MacArthur was trying to point out how great the love of God was and it had sinners in the hands of an angry God. Have you read that before? And it talks about just the horrific nature of sin in God's eyes and I'm sitting there reading that going, no, no. And then as I got further on, I'm like, actually, yes, yes. That's who I am. I'm not worthy of a thing. Not worthy of a thing that he's given me. And do you know what happened to me after that? I would choke up in prayer and praise. Whenever a, a song would come in, it might even be a song I didn't like. I didn't particularly like hymns at the time. Sorry. And, and I'd be listening to, to you know, it as well with my soul and, and starting to choke up, thinking, wow, before that, I'd always had to pump up my praise. But when I realized how I couldn't do a thing, it completely changed my life change my motivation if you put your faith in him know you're a sinner know that jesus died for your sins and that you can't do a thing to earn that it's completely of him don't worry about motivation that's going to come that's going to come the motivation of paul who says uh, his grace to me was not in vain it was not empty i worked harder than all of them because of his grace but even then it wasn't me It was the grace of God at work within me. 
Maybe this is the first time you've realized that. This is a time to believe it and a time to confess it and a time to praise the Lord for it. Don't live like you're not forgiven. Do you think Jesus came and died for your sins so that you could walk around miserable about it all the time and not think about him? Not rejoice in him? No. The second category of what you might be if you're lacking assurance of salvation is that of a blunted Christian. I have to do alliteration somewhere. Um, That of a blunted Christian. You know, there was a time when you were sharp. You're a believer. There was a time when you were sharp, but you let yourself be overpowered by sin. I use those words intentionally. Sin is not just a choice we make. Sin is a slavery relationship. A slavery relationship. When you allow sin into your life, you offer yourself up to become its slave. You can read that in Romans chapter 6. And it will rule over you. Sin promises satisfaction, but it delivers poison and it delivers prison. Do you remember what the serpent promised Eve? Wasn't it great? You'll be like God. You'll be wise like him. What did it deliver? It delivered death. It delivered shame. It delivered heartache. It delivered separation from God. It delivered relationship problems. It delivered slavery to sin. Did you believe the lie too? You might look to all the world like an unbeliever right now, but it's because you've given yourself over to slavery to sin. And I want to look at some of these sins because we tend to have a certain idea in our mind of what sin is. Let me tell you what James says sin is throughout his book. And of course, this is not exhaustive of all that the scriptures say. Doubting God's goodness, that's the anxiety. Not responding to scripture with obedience, belittling the poor, harming people or their reputation with the words you say. Jealousy, selfish ambition, love of the world, being self-confident about your life. If you're wondering about why your life has become dull, why your eyes are dry, your heart's cold, and your feet are sluggish, it's because you've let sin come to stay. And when you opened the door, at first you felt it was wrong, but then you made excuses instead of confessing the truth, and you shut your conscience down. Let me say what James would say to you right now. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God, Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Stop laughing about it. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. This is just repentance. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will lift you up. He will exalt you. God has grace for you. Don't wait. Don't minimize it again. Don't suppress your conscience again. Don't go talk to someone who's going to tell you it's all right. I bet you you're avoiding people in this church who will tell you it's wrong. Go and talk to them. Go and talk to them. God has grace for you today if you're a blunted Christian. And the third category is one that James was dealing with here. And that's the bogus Christian. The bogus Christian. That's the not real Christian. It's the one who has faith that doesn't save. So you probably say you're a Christian. You probably know your Bible. You can probably talk the talk. You might even be pretty impressive in what you know. But the truth is that your Christianity is an empty shell. That's all it is. Sometimes this is a person who grew up in church but missed the point. Missed the glory of the gospel. Often also this person has responded to a false gospel, a false gospel. And that might be a gospel of works where I can, I can do it, you know, I'm God's gift to God. It might be a gospel that promised material benefits. Come to God and you'll get, come to God and you'll get. 
It might have been a gospel that didn't tell me I was a sinner. It might have been a gospel that didn't recognize the lordship of Jesus Christ and who he is, the great God of the universe who died on my behalf. So if God's at work in your heart today through this passage, don't settle for the fake. Don't settle for fake Christianity. You can fool me any day of the week, but you're not fooling God. Not at all. God is offering you real life. He's offering you real salvation, real forgiveness, real victory over sin. And you receive that by putting your faith in Jesus Christ. That's what you do. Believing who the Bible, what the Bible says he is or who the Bible says he is, the divine son of God. Believing what he says about you, you're a sinner and you need his forgiveness. Believing that he has fully paid the price for you by dying your death. Dying your death. And then letting go of your old life, letting go of the fake and turning to him and saying, I want that Lord. I want to put my hands on the head of that lamb and receive what he's freely given me. And you will be saved. You will be saved. But it'll only ever be by grace. And it'll only be through faith. And that faith will be visible. Let's pray together. Dear Father, we are thankful for your word. We're thankful when it strips us away. Strips away our excuses. Strips away our wrong thinking. And Father, we pray that you would do that today. That you would help us to clearly understand your salvation. To clearly understand what it means to know you. To clearly see in our own lives where we need to repent. And Father, I pray for people here who feel like they're earning their salvation. Lord, convict them. Help them to see what you've done for them. Help them to see how free they are in you, even if they're not seeing it right now. That they may be filled with joy at your salvation. For those who are bound up in sin and not feeling assurance of faith, not feeling assurance of salvation, Lord, lift them up. Lift them up. Convict their hearts. Help them to turn away from their sin, Lord, that they may enjoy your grace and your forgiveness. And Father, if there is our people here today who are either pretending or not realizing they don't know you or people who have just come and don't know what it is to be saved, Lord, please save them. Work in their hearts through your power, through your Holy Spirit to draw them to yourself. Father, thank you for this time. In Jesus' name, amen.